Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I speak with Carrie Key and Chloe Gustafson on their massive freshwater discovery off the east coast of the United States. According to the United Nations, 60% of the world's population lives in places with high water stress, meaning that more water is being withdrawn than is currently available. In this crucial conversation, Carrie and Chloe discuss how they used existing geophysical techniques in a new way to discover fresh water off the United States Atlantic coast, the equivalent amount that would fill 1.1 billion Olympic-sized swimming pools. Carrie and Chloe also share how scientists in other parts of the world could utilize this discovery to find their own sources of fresh water and what the future could look like if electromagnetic methods get widely adopted for seeking fresh water. This is a fun and exciting conversation on how geophysics can help the world. You'll want to share this one with your family and friends. This episode is sponsored by CGG. When searching for and developing freshwater resources, imagine what you could do with an effective map of what's underground. CGG's multi-physics imaging experts can use a range of methods to locate freshwater reserves and flag potential subsurface issues before they become bigger problems. Gain a fresh perspective with CGG's proven technology and unmatched experience, and see things differently. For the full biographies, links to the research, and to see this discovery in action, visit seg.org podcast. And now, our conversation. For many in this podcast audience, they, they may not have heard the exciting news of, of what we have uh, Carrie and Chloe on the podcast today to talk about. So could you share what discovery you all made with a survey of the subsea floor off the Northeast United States coast? Sure. Uh, so both off the coast of New Jersey and also Martha's Vineyard, we discovered that there's a large continuous body of relatively fresh water within the ocean floor that extends from the coastline out to about 90 kilometers or 55 miles offshore. And it had been seen before offshore New Jersey that there was low salinity offshore groundwater through some old drilling from the 70s. Uh, but what we showed that was new was that offshore New Jersey, we had this really continuous, extensive body of low salinity water and then offshore New Jersey, there was no prior drilling. So we're really providing the first look at offshore groundwater in that region. So why is finding groundwater in, in this part of the seafloor important? So something that comes to mind, I think, for a lot of people at first is that there's this relatively fresh water that could potentially be a resource. Now, offshore New Jersey and Martha's Vineyard, you don't necessarily see cities that are uh, water stressed per se. Uh, so in this region, it's maybe not so much of a resource. But in other regions of the world, these types of offshore groundwater reserves uh, could eventually be really critical water resources as onshore resources diminish. Yeah, I can I can add to that that there's been some United Nations 
reports and other other reports out there that you know notes that 60% of the global population lives in areas of high water stress, which are areas where you know more water is being withdrawn than what's available uh, or what's recharged annually through surface water recharge. And um, cities like major coastal cities such as Cape Town, um, Chennai, India, these places have already suffered extreme water shortages in the last decade, you know, in some cases, many times in the last decade. And uh, there's other large cities like Jakarta, uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Beijing, et cetera, that um, are likely to see these, um, you know, water stress issues with major shortages. And these are all coastal cities. And so if there's offshore fresh and groundwater, like what we see off New Jersey and Martha's Vineyard, if there, if these sorts of aquifers exist there, it might be a potential resource they could use to help mitigate these water stress periods where they run into shortages. Yeah, that kind of makes me think of a couple of questions. You know, being we have a fairly technical audience, I'm sure they're excited to kind of hear the techniques that you utilized to to make this discovery. But thinking about that, um, you know, where this discovery of freshwater may not be essential as of right now to this part of, of the United States, do you hope that these techniques could possibly be utilized in those places you mentioned in Chennai and elsewhere to maybe make these freshwater discoveries off their own coasts? Yes, I would say that we hope this technology could be put to use uh, in regions around the world to find offshore groundwater. I think one of the things that makes this discovery so exciting is that there are other boreholes like on every single continent in the world that have shown that similar freshwater offshore systems exist. And now that we've shown that we have the technology to kind of characterize and map the extent of these systems, we can go out and do that in these places that Carrie mentioned, uh, like offshore South Africa or Australia, uh, where these coastal regions might be in need of water resources. So the techniques that you you use to make this freshwater discovery, was this a, a novel way to use these techniques and, and work just like this? Yeah, it was a novel application for large-scale mapping of offshore fresh and groundwater aquifers, but the technology had been around for about oh, 30 years or more. Um, it was in the early 1980s that the techniques that we use, these marine electromagnetic induction methods, were originally developed, uh, and they were developed for mapping tectonic plates beneath the oceans as part of studying the age of the oce- oceanic lithosphere, as well as looking at um, mid-ocean ridge processes related to plate tectonics. And that technology kind of sat around as a curious technique used by a handful of academics in the world and throughout the 80s and 90s. And then in the late 1990s, both ExxonMobil and Statoil recognized that the technology could be used for exploring for hydrocarbons on the continental shelves. And that spurred this uh, sort of runaway process of technological development and advancement in the instrumentation, um, the numerical modeling techniques, data processing techniques, and spurred a whole industry of offshore electromagnetic exploration for hydrocarbon mapping. And, um, and so we learned a lot from that. Like I was a PhD student when this first started, and we learned a lot about how to use the techniques, how to improve them for offshore oil and gas exploration. And then our colleague, uh, Rob Evans, who's a co-author on the paper with us, he was interested in using them for offshore groundwater mapping. And I started looking at the, the signature of those sorts of targets, and I realized that this was very similar to mapping an oil and gas reservoir 
um, in the continental shelf sediments, but it was a much easier target because the groundwater aquifers are thought to exist only in the upper few hundred meters or so of the sediments, whereas the oil and gas reservoirs that industry was interested in are, you know, a kilometer, or, you know, multiple kilometers deep. So from our point of view, it was like a technology that was just there waiting to be applied for mapping offshore groundwater. And we put in several proposals to the National Science Foundation to get funding for this project. And um, the only preceding type of data even close to this were some very, very small scale surveys that our colleague Rob Evans and a few other colleagues had done where they had looked at you know, groundwater in the upper few meters of sediments, not you know, 100 meters to 500 meters down. And um, so we didn't have a lot of prior art to demonstrate it could work, but we knew the technology would work based on our work in the oil and gas industry. And after several attempts for funding, we finally got the green light from the National Science Foundation and were able to go out and acquire this data set. And it was basically viewed as a, a test bed pilot study of the technique to try and um, you know prove that it would work. And you know it worked screaming, you know, swimmingly well. We were really, really happy uh, with the results. Uh, that we got both off New Jersey and off Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, that's a really heck of a pilot research project that that you make this discovery. Uh, and, you know, something additionally incredible that you're seeing in the research is that this freshwater resource you discovered may actually be receiving new freshwater. And that that just amazes me. Could you share how your research is pointing in that direction and how that is possible? Yeah, so the reason we think that these aquifer systems could be uh, be being modernly recharged by onshore systems is we see in our imaging the freshest water is closest to the shore. So that really just points to us that there could be some possible mechanism feeding these offshore groundwater systems. Additionally, some isotope work in the offshore sediments and pore waters does indicate that there is uh, some sort of modern recharge mechanism, at least offshore New Jersey. Well, to add to Chloe's answer, in the onshore region, there's a lot known about the, the coastal aquifers, both in New Jersey as well as in Martha's Vineyard Island and, and nearby Nantucket Island. And in both of those places, um, particularly in the islands, you know, one of the things that a lot of coastal communities throughout the world have to deal with is if they're extracting the groundwater faster than it can be recharged in these coastal regions, you can have seawater intrusion or saltwater intrusion that basically contaminates the, the groundwater aquifers because as you pull out the freshwater, seawater comes in. But in both Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket's regions, as well as New Jersey, they don't have a really low, they don't have, you know, a significant problem with saltwater intrusion. So it does suggest that in those regions, the onshore groundwater is being recharged faster than they're using it. And so that, you know, helps buttress this hypothesis that the groundwater is flowing out from the onshore region into the offshore region. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You think if it flows one way, then maybe it could flow the other way. And and kind of speaking of that, you know, you mentioned that there there could be similar and that there are similar kind of geologic regions like this in, in other parts of the world. Do you think it's possible that similar aquifers are being fed this new fresh water with this low salinity as well in other parts of the world? Yeah, and there's actually been, since our study has been published, there's been at least two papers that I know of that do demonstrate that this is occurring. So one of our colleagues 
at Hawaii has shown that this can happen on volcanic islands, uh, which is pretty cool. I think it's a totally different system than what we're seeing in New Jersey uh, because we're looking at a volcanic island rather than a continental shelf. But Eric Atias is his name. Um, he's shown that in Hawaii, there are these onshore recharge mechanisms that are feeding offshore groundwater that he has observed. And then also we have uh, some colleagues from Germany and elsewhere who recently published a study offshore New Zealand, which is in another continental shelf environment. And they've shown that there is extensive low salinity offshore groundwater in New Zealand. And they have this nice sort of partner paper to that study that examines the onshore system and basically the groundwater they're, that they're seeing onshore matches up pretty well with what they see offshore. So it's really likely that there's a modern connection in New Zealand as well. I think what a lot of people might be thinking as well as myself is this, how can we utilize this water? Is it is it fairly easy to use it as drinking water, let's say? So the water that we've imaged offshore, both New Jersey and Martha's Vineyard, is relatively fresh, but it's not completely fresh. So there is still some level of desalinization that would need to occur if we were to extract this water. But for the most part, what we're seeing, the water salinity is well below half the salinity of seawater. So it would be much less expensive to desalinate this water compared to desalinating seawater. But on the other hand, we would need to establish some sort of infrastructure to actually extract this water. Uh, so there are still additional costs in that regard. You know, if a, a scientist is listening to this and kind of excited to take what you all discovered in the U.S. and, and put it to their part of the world, how would you recommend, you know, utilizing this discovery to help possibly find their own sources of fresh water? I think there's a couple different you know, strategies we could recommend. I mean, one is that the techniques that we use, this large-scale electromagnetic imaging technique, is something that now, through our paper, as well as some of these, these two other follow-on publications that Chloe mentioned, you know, we've established that this is a viable and useful technique for characterizing these offshore aquifers. You know, the, other, the only really other method for trying to study where they exist is to drill holes into the ground or into the seafloor. And that becomes very expensive and involves a lot of planning. Whereas the type of method we are using, you can plan it and go out and do it in, you know, over the course of like a couple of months. And it seems to be a very reliable technique. So one is you could use these sorts of techniques to go out and explore for regions of the seafloor where you think there might be um, offshore fresh and groundwater. And obviously you would, you know, good places to start are where there's abundant or where there's freshwater aquifers that are early systems um, in the nearshore region that are thought to extend offshore. You know, you want to go looking for the likely targets first before you go for the harder targets. There's, we'll link it in the podcast notes. There's some very amazing videos that you all have uh, published, as well as some news stories that that show kind of highlight the tools you're using and the methods you're using in action. And and by my count, I, I counted 35 articles, radio and TV appearances for this discovery. You know, I'm just kind of curious, why do you think this discovery just really excited uh, the community and, and the and the public so much? I think there are 
two main reasons for why people got excited about this research that we've done. I think maybe the first reason is that the idea that there's fresh water below the ocean within the seafloor is pretty incredible. And it's not something that people normally think about existing, I guess. Like when I started this project for my PhD with Carrie, I had never heard of offshore groundwater before until Carrie gave me this data set and said, do you want to work with this? And then I think the second complementary reason for why this discovery was so exciting is just the sheer volume of water. So if we sort of interpolate between New Jersey and Martha's Vineyard and assume that whole region is underlain by a massive aquifer system, then there would be about 2,800 cubic kilometers of relatively fresh water. And that's similar to 1 billion Olympic swimming pools or just over half the volume of water in Lake Michigan. Uh, So I think realizing that there's such a large volume of water is what also got people excited about this discovery. Yeah, and I can add to that, you know, we discovered this one specific aquifer existing in the seafloor off the coast. And um, when people have tried to, you know, make best guess estimates of how many of these types of features exist, you know, throughout the planet on all the coastlines around the world, it's around 100 to 1,000 times more of these types of features that, that probably exist uh, globally. So that's a lot of water that's out there to, to help uh, quench the world's thirst. Yeah, that's that's really incredible. And, and kind of for both of you, uh, I'd love for you to finish this sentence. When these EM methods for finding fresh water gets widely adopted, it will... When our EM methods for finding fresh water get widely adopted... I think it will lead to a better understanding of what water resources are available to us globally. If you look at some of the published papers on estimates of global groundwater, you don't see anything accounted for in the oceans. Uh, So I think this is just sort of the next step that we need to take with EM methods is mapping out the rest of the world's groundwater, really. Yeah, and I can add to that. I mean, I think when these methods are more widely adopted and they're used throughout the world, we're going to learn a lot more about where these groundwater aquifers exist. And we haven't really touched on this today, but part of the story of the emplacement, the original emplacement of these aquifers is that they occurred during the last ice age when sea level was a lot lower because all of that water was trapped in the ice sheets. And so you had these exposed continental shelves where um, meteoric rainfall and groundwater funnel through creeks and river systems and basically fill up the continental shelves. You can think of them as like a giant sponge that was collecting fresh water. And then at the end of the ice ages, when sea level rose in certain areas where the groundwater was covered by an impermeable layer, um, it basically trapped the fresh water beneath that impermeable layer and the rest of the sediments were filled with seawater. And so as we understand where more and more of these types of features exist on the continental shelves worldwide. It'll help us understand the impact of of sea level change starting from the last ice age to the present day. And that may help us understand what's going to happen with future sea level rise and how that's going to impact these coastal and offshore groundwater aquifers. 
So lastly here, you know, we kind of opened it. It was off off air before we started recording, but just, you know, the industry is in a unique place and, and people might be, uh, you know, laid off looking for new opportunities. I'm just curious for, for the both of you, what is one piece of advice you would offer someone that is that would like to succeed in this field? I think the way, you know, I like to, we always joke about this in academia, at least with a bunch of my colleagues, but it's like there's there's sort of two students that apply to graduate school. There's the Isaac Newton genius that um, I've never known. And then there's the rest of us, myself, that, you know, I like to joke around that we're just too dumb to quit. We just keep on trying and we don't give up and we just obsess about our research and keep learning new things and keep absorbing new material and keep on trying. And so there's a rare chance that you're a true genius, but most of the rest of us are genes and we just keep on, you know, having this thirst for knowledge and keep trying to learn new things and, you know, reading as much as we can from the research community, interacting with other researchers and collaborating with this leads to a lot of new spontaneous things. Like I, I really can't say what I'm going to be doing a year from now because I know that there's going to be a bunch of spontaneous events, you know, between now and next January that are going to, um, you know, shape where my path goes. And you just want to keep an open mind and keep on the lookout for those opportunities. You know, to expand on this and maybe in a more general sense that you're looking for, but we learn a lot as geophysicists, you know, you learn a lot of math, statistics, physics, engineering. You know, we often, a lot of us don't get our data from the internet. We actually have to go out to sea or dig holes in the ground and, you know, get tough hands and wear work boots and do all the field safety protocols. And so we just experience so many different aspects of work that somebody else in another position, you know, one at, one of those aspects might be what they do for their entire career. But we have 10 different things, for example, that we do. And so you kind of become a jack of all trades in terms of quantitative science and physical science, as well as understanding, you know, how to do work in the field and, and, and do field-based research. And so it makes you a very versatile, you know, employee if you want to go work for a company that's doing any sort of data science, because you have a lot of rigorous uh, quantitative training on the job as a geophysicist. Yeah, I definitely agree with what Carrie said. And just in general, as geophysicists, I feel like we have the skills to visualize data and create stories with our data in a meaningful way. And, you know, we're used to doing that for geologic problems, but there's probably several other ways we can use those data storytelling skills in other fields. Yeah, and, you know, I think as a geophysicist, you know, we're, we study hazards, we study resources, we study the way the earth works. And, you know, societies need changes and energy balances and resource needs change. You know, we as geophysicists need to uh, change and adapt to that. And I think the industry's seeing a lot of change right now. And a lot of people are sort of re-envisioning and re-reimagining you know, the way that they, um, you know, operate as a geophysicist. Well, I, I really appreciate you both coming on here and sharing about this discovery and are certainly excited to see what else uh, comes down in this in this vein. And in the future, it looks like there's going to be some a lot of more big discoveries to come along the way. Thanks to this pioneering research that you all were a part of. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's a really exciting time for our, our technique in the field of offshore fresh and groundwater research. I think uh, there's a lot of promising new discoveries that are just around the corner. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. 
SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to the website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all the episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by Andrew Gary at 51 Features. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bacomjian, Jennifer Crockett, Ali McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.